This morning, our New Testament sermon passage is from the book of John. Please open up your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 17 to 27. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When they saw his mother and the disciple, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he'd loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Katie, for reading God's word to us. If I haven't met you before, my name's Darren. I'm the pastors here, and I'd love to uh, begin by a word of prayer. So would you join me as we pray? Father, from this passage this morning, we would ask that you would show us yourself in all your glory and in all your splendor, that you would show us our sin where we've fallen short, and then you would show us our Savior, your Son, as we behold him in this passage this morning, in whose name we now pray, amen. One of the tourist destinations that I wanted to see growing up was the Big Banana, Um, which we laugh because we all know once you get to the Big Banana, you experience it's a big letdown. Uh, That's not really all that big. But on the way to the Big Banana, driving down down from the, the Northern Gold Coast region, you're looking for the sign. You're looking for Coffs Harbour, and you're looking for the sign, where's the Big Banana? 
and you're waiting for it, and then when you see it, it coughs harbor this way, and so you take the exit, and you're thinking, where's the big banana? You're looking for the sign, and all of a sudden, the sign points the big banana 200 meters, and then and you're kind of there, and you're kind of standing before the you know, slightly bigger than average banana, wondering, is this the big banana? But, but the signs have taken you there. The, the signs have directed you to where you wanted to go, what you needed to do, because you need to navigate. That's what signs help that's what signs and symbols do. But have you considered what it would be like to live in a world uh, without signs and without symbols? Have you considered what it would be like to not have any directions on the road? No street signs to tell you where to go? No speed limits to indicate the safe travel? Uh, that your fuel light in your car wouldn't tell you when you're about to run out of fuel? There'd be no um, signs distinguishing where the toilets were in a time and moment of need. Um, not to mention, cafe menus would be quite improbable for anyone who was gluten-free. There'd be no GF next to any of these restaurants. Actually, a world without signs would, would be chaotic, wouldn't it? Absolutely chaotic. Signs are there to communicate. They're there to tell us something, to, to be noticed. As we heard read in this passage, before us this morning is such a sign, and before us this morning is such a symbol. A sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and the symbol of the cross, Jesus being crucified. In 1857, uh, a cave was discovered that contained some kind of graffiti of sorts that was dated back to the 3rd century A.D., uh, it's a picture of a man, um, supposedly in soldier's uniform, looking up at another man who is being crucified on a cross, but whose head is a donkey. The inscription says, Eliximos worships his God. The graffiti is a mocking depiction of Christian worship, a symbol of a cross designed to shame. And yet when we come to John's gospel, the symbol of the cross is anything but something to be mocked at. In fact, the symbol of the cross is there where Jesus is being lifted up. It is a moment of glory and it is a moment of exaltation. John has been building up to this moment when the Son of Man would be lifted up. And so you, where you would have seen the signs in his Gospels all along the way. You would have seen it in John 3.14 when he said, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the Son of Man be, must be lifted up that whoever believes may have eternal life. John 8, 28 says, So Jesus said to them, When you see the Son of Man lifted up, then you will know that I am He. You will see Jesus for who, truly, who He truly was. And lastly, John 12, 32, Jesus saying, When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The sign that he is king, the symbol of his victorious death. As we see the passage, I want us to see the sign and the symbol. Uh, the symbol. I, I want us to experience and see what the, the hymn writer wrote on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. For us to see the Son of Man lifted up today, let us look at it from three angles. 
The first angle being a king crucified. The second angle being a king vindicated. And the third angle being a king's care. So firstly, a king crucified. So they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. If you looked up at that hill called Golgotha in that dreadful hour, nothing would have seemed to be out of place. Crucifixions of um, criminals was common practice. Uh, The Persians had begun crucifixions by some 500 years earlier, and now the Romans had perfected this type of execution. Whilst it was not uncommon, crucifixions were certainly unpleasant. Persons would be stripped naked, beaten, bruised and pinned on a cross, laid out in the hot sun for hours, even days, till eventually they died. Historian Josephus said that it was one of the most wretched of deaths. The Greek philosopher Cicero said that decent citizens shouldn't think about it because it isn't fit for good, decent, noble people. What happened on the cross, in one sense, is unthinkable. And yet, we must think on it. It's central to Christianity. It's a central act in all of history. There they crucified him on that hill called Golgotha. The hill that Jesus walked up to. A hill that he walked up to bearing his own cross. Now notice in verse 16, the soldiers might have taken Jesus, as verse 16 concludes. But John makes it clear it was Jesus who went out. Just as he went, went out from that upper room to face his captors, So Jesus goes out from his captives to face his execution. This is Jesus in command. This is Jesus in control. And there he is carrying his cross. Can you picture him? Can you picture the steps? Can you picture the weight bearing on his shoulders? Plutarch in his writing, The Divine Vengeance, notes that each criminal, as part of their punishment, must carry their own cross on their back. The picture of Jesus um, on that road, somewhat reminiscent of Isaac, carrying the wood for the sacrifice. You see, the, the heaviest weight he'd be carrying wasn't the 40 kilogram beam that was on his exposed back, but rather it was the greater burden, the sacrifice for sin that Jesus was about to carry. Yet, unlike Isaac, there would be no substitute. But Jesus was that substitute, he would be the sacrifice for sins. So he takes one step in front of the other and walks to that hill, the place of the skull, Golgotha. Let me dwell on Golgotha, weep and love my life away, while I see him on the tree, weep and bleed and die for me. And as there is the the writer John records for us that he was laid upon the cross. And what John summarizes in four words, there they crucified him. Nails were driven through his hands and his feet, some of the most sensitive of bodily nerves. He was then raised up and dropped into the hole, jolting his body. The the tension of the nails, the only thing holding up his battered body. He stands there bleeding, sweating, suffering. He is lifted up for all to see. Though the work isn't finished yet, is it? 
In fact, it's only just about to begin. He has the wrath of God to face, to bear the, the consequences for our sin. I wonder this morning, do you see the sign? I wonder this morning, do you see the symbol? Christ on the cross. And he's there between two criminals. On one hand, Jesus has been pictured before us as the Jews wanted as a lowlife. One who was cursed, hung on a tree to be considered condemned to death. And yet from another angle, we see Jesus' solidarity among sinners in this world as one who enduring shame and suffering and the consequences for our sin. There they crucify him. Can you see the sign? Can you see the symbol? And it was there that Pilate wrote a sign about this Jesus and about this king. Verse 19 has this interesting word. It says, also, this is something also that he did. What else had Pilate done so far? Well, Pilate had presented this bruised and beaten and bloody Jesus, draped in a purple robe and a crown of thorns pressed on his head to mock him, taking him out to the crowds and says, behold your king. He said, Shall I crucify your king? Mocking, taunting Jewish leaders. Well, the threat to tell Caesar on him, well, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Yet Pilate here is seeking to have the last laugh. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Read with me in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. See, the Jewish leaders, they, they wanted to distance themselves from Jesus. They, didn't, they wanted to be removed from any association with him. Though they wanted this sign to be changed, they could no more alter the sign than alter the Jesus' kingship. He was and is and forever will be the ruling and reigning king. Not just of the Jews, but of the whole world. I think that's kind of the implied significance of the three languages inscribed. Whilst there were many folks out of town, the, the message of the criminals would be labeled and put upon the sign and here in three languages so that all may see what this man had done, both as a deterrent, but in God's providential plan and announcement to the world. Aramaic, the language used in Judea, the religious Jews. Latin, the language of the soldiers, the, the, the political sphere, the Romans. And then Greek, the language of the empire, the Gentiles. Gentiles all would see he is king of the Jews. Jesus is king of the world and God wants everyone to know it. But these Jewish leaders, they contested that truth. They who had resisted Jesus' lordship all along were not suddenly going to change tune in this final moment. Pilate had said, this is the end of the matter. What I have written, I have written. And in one sense, it, it, it really is the end of the matter, isn't it? Pilate has written far better than he knew. Pilate has communicated the message that we've all received for those in Christ, that Jesus is the true King. 
His petty revenge only served God's plans in announcing Jesus as king. What a paradox it is to see a king crucified, though, isn't it? I mean, that's not what happens with kings. Kings have coronations. Kings have, have awards. Kings have ceremonies. Kings don't get crucified, and yet we have King Jesus being crucified. He gives his life by laying his own down. His power is not like the world's. He wins by losing. He is the king who is our savior from death. This is our king who is our sacrifice for sin. This is our king who is our substitute in our place. That's why we sing, because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We see the sign, we see the symbol, we see our savior. As we sung earlier, behold the lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold his perfect sacrifice. Behold the wounds of grace upon his hands and feet. Oh, the Lamb of God on Calvary. We see the sign. We see the symbol. We see our Savior. So church, this morning, we are to lay hold of this King. We are to submit to him. We do not want to demean his words or seek to diminish his rule or reign. We don't want to distance ourselves from him or, or, or bring his reputation into disrepute. We want him to be our king through all of our life. As one Puritan prayed, when lusts are strong and temptations are violent, when grace is weak and God's way seems unpleasant, be my king, be my king. We have a crucified king. The camera, as it were, then kind of pans to a different angle. The same event now seen from a different spot. And here we see the vindicated king and we see the indifference of the soldiers. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. For the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So John advances the story again for us, doesn't he? And he kind of anchors us back in that moment. There, the soldiers crucified him. They had crucified him. There's that word again, crucified. Jesus' death would be barbaric. It would be a mockery. It'd be a shameful and painfully slow way to die. During crucifixion, the, the, the body would um, convulse, muscles would spasm, the, the body would shake. Death would eventually be caused by asphyxiation. As, they, as, as criminals or as persons hung on the cross, they would seek to push themselves up for a breath of air, only to slouch back down again. Pushing themselves up from their nails, in their feet, in their hands, to try and get one more breath often passing in and out of consciousness. The, the cross is horrific, so horrific that, that they invented a word that we know is excruciating, which means from the cross. The kind of pain that was experienced was beyond any kind of torture or torment that was around. In fact, when women were crucified, which was rare, they, it was said that they were faced inward so that, so that people may not see the pain on their faces. 
Jesus, our King, was crucified. Is that all he was, though? Was he just a man crucified? Did this world have the last laugh as this supposed criminal was put to death? These four soldiers kind of carried on like nothing of much significance was happening. For them, this was another day in the office. This was business as usual. We're here to enforce the law. We've been told to put the man to death. We've put the man to death. And now we wait. And now we pass time. And so it was customary for soldiers to take the spoils of their victims. But they, he had to decide who would get what. And the soldiers had taken his dignity, taken his honor. They were taking his life. The only thing left to take was literally the clothes on his back. There the garments remained. The very garments which Jesus had previously laid aside the night before whilst washing his disciples' feet. In that act of humility and humiliation, Jesus here was now laying them all aside. Jesus was giving all that he had. Now, it's not clear whether the garments, this was four, four soldiers tearing up garments into four pieces and then casting lots over the one seamless tunic, or whether they divided, divided simply the, the clothes and the, the, the garments that Jesus had. There would be four. There would be a cloak, a belt, sandals, and headwear. But the point John is making is, 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 is in their words and it is in their actions, that they were actually fulfilling the words of Scripture. They were fulfilling the words of Scripture. This was written so that you may believe you would see this fulfillment taking place here. Because it's a fulfillment passage, John is trying to alert us as, as the reader and as the listener not to think that Jesus is some helpless victim in this moment. The innocent Jesus losing all that he has. But rather, we are to see a sense of triumphant confidence. The God of the universe is bringing about fulfillment of all things. The fulfillment reference comes from Psalm 22, which Jesus also quotes, but is not recorded here. Remember when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The passage here, they divided my garments and among them and for my clothing they cast lots, is from Psalm 22. The, the psalm tells of a righteous person being afflicted and being mocked. It pictures an execution scene when, when, when one's garments are literally taken away. And the, the imagery, the picture is one of abandonment. So the psalm finishes, as we heard read earlier, as one who ultimately will be vindicated by God. So that's what's happening here. This isn't simply a proof text to show that Jesus was the Messiah, which he is. It's to embrace the richness of what this prophetic passage was pointing to. He who laid his glory aside, he who was abandoned on the cross would ultimately be vindicated. Victory would be his. As onlookers saw Jesus, they would see but a helpless man. But in reality, Jesus, the king of the world, was seeing all history coming towards its appointed end. The soldiers acted as if this was the end. The job was done. He would be dead soon. The sun will set. Life goes on, but it wasn't the end. Jesus' meekness and majesty would, would, would be unmatched in human history, and so he would eventually rise from the dead in glorious victory. Friends, see that God is in control here. In spite of the soldiers' indifference, 
God is in control. Now, it's one thing for God to fulfill his plans. It's another thing, I think, to be completely indifferent to those plans. Let me say that. There's one thing for God to be fulfilling his plans, but it's another entirely thing for us to be indifferent to the plans that God is fulfilling. So think about these soldiers for a moment. Here they are separating these items of Jesus for their own keepsake. Now, we aren't to think that they got these items and then kind of just threw them in the bin. They wanted to keep them. And so consider for a moment one of the soldiers wearing Jesus' belt as he walked around town. Could you imagine those who knew Jesus seeing one of those soldiers passing through the streets noticing his sandals? People indifferent to the man who was just killed. These soldiers kind of picture a kind of indifference to Jesus that I think sadly might characterize some people today when it comes to Jesus and who he is. Some people wear vestiges of Jesus. They carry around symbols around their neck, a cross. They thank God in acceptance speeches. They pray vague prayers in times of need. They might even comment about Jesus from their lips. But they don't carry around a heart inflamed with love and devotion to him. One fellow I met the other day identified himself as Protestant. He said, I'm Protestant. I was like, what does that mean? He says, I think it means I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a Catholic. Okay, so that's narrowed it down. He says, I went to Uniting Church one time. I'm Protestant carries around a vague idea of Jesus, but is completely indifferent to him, do you see? He didn't see the cross. He didn't see the sign. He didn't see the symbol. But to behold the sign is to take hold of the Savior, isn't it? To see the sign, to see the cross, to see Christ pouring out his blood for the remission of sins. Oh, we must take hold of Christ. John Calvin writes, Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. We cannot be indifferent to such truths. We must not be indecisive. We are to embrace them. Loved ones, we aren't simply to have parts of Jesus in parts of our lives. We need to have all of Christ in all of our lives. We need the sign and symbol of Christ to penetrate our very living souls. Christ needs to pierce into our calendars, pierce into our affections, pierce into our bank statements, pierce in the way you relate to your friends and to your family. It is to characterize your mornings. It is to infiltrate every word that you speak. Christ is to be in all and through all in our lives. We mustn't remain indifferent to it. These soldiers went about business as normal. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I do pray that you see Christ. I do pray that you see the Son of Man lifted up as his word is preached and proclaimed. 
because your indifference to him now will not be overlooked then. Now is the time. Today is the day to respond to the King of glory, the crucified King, who will be vindicated. Come and see him for all he is. Come and hear his invitation to repent from sin and believe upon him, and so be brought to the Father. Well, from a scene of indifference, the final camera kind of moves to a scene of devotion. We have here the king who cares. And the contrast from the soldiers who cast lots to the women whose eyes were cast upon Jesus probably couldn't be more startling. You've just got, so the soldiers did these things, verse 24, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Here the evangelist John presents for us four women in contrast to the four soldiers. These women are here prepared to stand by the cross and so prepared to stand by Jesus. The other disciples all by one have abandoned him. But there they are standing, happy to align with him, happy to be seen with him in his hour of most pressing shame, in his hour of agony. The first, the mother of Jesus, Mary, who had given birth to him, who raised him, who who taught him how to eat, taught him how to walk and talk, who, who watched him grow up, now sees him there strung up on a cross. Her sister, who'd seen Jesus grow in stature, who had heard him speak his first words, who'd watched him play with with their children, his cousins, now sees him on a tree. Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we do not know anything about. And fourthly, Mary Magdalene, the one who, if you remember, was tormented by seven demons and Jesus delivered her. She now looks upon her saviour seeing his greater work of deliverance, his death for her sins. I think this is a sobering scene, isn't it? Just to, just to, to, to sit there or to, to meditate on for any moment. These women and the disciple whom Jesus loved, we've identified that as John, the writer of this gospel. You've got to wonder, what did Jesus see when he as verse 26 says, when Jesus saw his mother. Out of all the noise and the clamoring and, and the, the, the atoning work that was on his mind, in the midst of all that, he looked out and Jesus saw his mother. Consider with me what he must have seen, what that look was upon her face. Were her eyes swollen with tears? Was she holding tightly to her sister because her strength to stand was perhaps weak? Did her lip tremble, overcome with sorrow as she looked upon her beloved son? Consider what this moment would have been like for Mary to see her son there hanging on a cross. The little hands she once held, now pierced. The feet she'd once helped to walk, now dripping with blood. 
the back that she'd so often soothed in times of comfort, now torn and flogged and pressed against an exposed wooden cross. The forehead she kissed, now crowned with thorns. I can't help but just wonder how Mary held herself back from just wanting to save him. To hold him, to deliver him from this torment that he was facing. It's a mother's job after all to protect her children and what is Mary's there. But all she can do is stand by. But she stands there. She endures. She endures the shame that would have been thrown upon her. She would have heard the words of every sneer, every mocking word, every taunt, every insult. How her eyes would have seen every spit, every look of contempt and disdain. You can imagine how people might, who, who love Mary have told her, do not go there on this day. No mother should see this sight. You can't hold up under that. No parent should see their child die. And yet she stands. There's no account of the words she speaks, but I think her presence there says enough. Never in the universe had a mother felt so helpless. We aren't to think though that Mary's experience of this would have come as a surprise. She, she knew her son would be a savior and she knew there would be pain. When Jesus was presented the table in his younger years, Mary received a word of prophecy from Simeon. And Simeon said that a sword would pierce her soul also. Her soul too would be struck just as another would be pierced. In this moment, her soul, I think, is being struck as she sees her son. There's something, I think, just to consider here as an aside for parents. Parents to be willing to endure the cost of what obedience to God might look like for your children. In a culture that longs to protect them from every bit of harm, place around them every bit of security, every bit of setting them up to, to, to be successful in life. Well, I think we see from Mary a greater need, and that is to teach and train our children towards faithful obedience to God in spite of whatever suffering might come their way. And to even look upon such suffering they might experience for the sake of God and for the sake of the gospel and say, glory, praise God. Faithful children, following him. Parents, let this vision be for you for your children. Raise it higher than a presentable career, an acceptable family. Seek that they would follow Jesus even into the moments of deep suffering and pain. And I want us to be careful as we consider Mary here. Because what I don't want to do is to simply induce in us a, a, a sense of sentimental sorrow at a mother losing a son. Though it is that, it's not less, but it's much more. I think in one sense, we are, we are actually here to consider just how costly our own sinfulness was that Jesus had to die that he had to endure this kind of death. As Hebrews 2.9 records, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Mary sees Jesus here tasting death 
so that you and I may taste life. Jesus' suffering as the God-man is doing something that, that God, who, who prior to his incarnation through the Son, had never done before, that is to suffer, to show his solidarity with humanity, to be able to represent us before the Father one day, see him suffering on the cross, see the sign, see the symbol. We also see by standing by the cross was the disciple whom Jesus loved. It is here we see the sign of love. It's in those words, isn't it? Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. These are tender words spoken by a savior. These are tender words spoken by a son. In that moment, Jesus was transferring responsibility of care of, 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 his, of his mother over to John, his beloved disciple. Jesus would be taking care of Mary's deepest spiritual need, her forgiveness of sin, whilst John would be taking care of Mary's deepest practical need as a vulnerable widow needing a home. His address of her as woman is not meant to be demeaning, it is meant to be honoring. You might reflect and remember the last time he addressed her as woman back in John 2, at the wedding of Canaan. He said there, woman, my hour has not yet come. Mary asked Jesus to do something with the wine situation. My hour has not yet come. In that moment, there was this orientation that Mary's belief in Jesus needed to be as a disciple of Jesus, not as a mother's belief in a son. There was a change in relationship. She must approach him as, one, as a disciple. That's what a deepest need is, to come to Jesus. Behold your son. Behold him. You can't help but hear overtones, not only in the context of behold your son, implying John, but also behold your son on the cross. I think John wants us to see some of that. Behold him there with his loving disposition. Behold Jesus on the cross, your son, who in his greatest moment of affliction is, is offering out a greatest moment of affection. Behold Jesus on the cross, who is upholding the law of God till his very last breath. Do you notice what he's doing here? He's not simply taking care of Mary by giving John to be her son. Jesus is upholding the law to this very final breath. Honor your mother and father. Jesus upholds the law on the cross. For him, the law is not some uh, dusty set of rules, dispassionate from life, some legalistic obedience. No, no, the law of God is life-giving, people-orient, um, people-honoring, God-glorifying. Right to the end, he upheld the law which you've got to think about. Just consider what's on Jesus' plate here as he's atoning for the sins of the world. He's here on the cross. The greatest work that he's been given by the Father to do, the crescendo, the moment that all the other works were leading up to, the greatest sign that you will see. He's there atoning, dealing with our sin problem, dealing with the punishment that should be laid upon all of us. And in the moment of the greatest, highest spiritual good, Jesus is also doing the most grounded, natural, simple task of honoring his mother. 
What a savior we have in Jesus. You see his perfections on the cross. From that hour on, John would have a mother in Mary and he would take care of her, treat her as his own. Now, we might be aware that some stretch the symbolism here in Jesus' words, don't they? Making out that Mary is the, the mother of all disciples, as if she's the one to come and take care of us. But that's not what the text says. The text is quite clear. The text is quite simple. They said to the disciple, verse 27, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home to take care of her, to look after her. That's, that's what Jesus is getting at here. There were, of course, other siblings that Jesus had, but from what we know in John's gospel, at least, these siblings hadn't come to believe in Jesus yet. So the most loving thing Jesus could do was entrust his, mo his mother to a spiritual brother. And the most loving thing to do for this disciple whom he loved was to gift him to this woman who had so warmly cared for him these past 33 years. It's a beautiful picture of love taking place in the darkest moments of history. I think we see in this moment of woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother, partial fulfillment of Jesus' words. For those who have left everything to follow him, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, to receive a hundredfold in this lifetime and the next. Here, Mary gains a son. Here, John gains a mother. They are welcomed into the spiritual family of God, the household of faith. In Jesus' own words from Mark 3.35, whoever shall do the will of God, the the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. See Jesus creating a new spiritual family here? See him drawing together people, placing them together at the foot of the cross? This is the, the picture and the portrait of the church. We have more, spiritually speaking, in common with those in Christ than we do our blood relatives. And so it also, I think, reflect and inform the way we would spend our time and spend our attention. We must not neglect God's people for the sake of, of, of time with spirit, of, of physical family. And prioritizing time with God's people will not come at an expense of physical family, but rather it should inform it. And so, church, we must devote ourselves to one another. Do you see the, the people to your, neck, to your left and to your right? as your spiritual family. Young mothers, you might be away from family physically, but you have spiritual mothers in this church who God has placed in position to love and care and support you in your parenting. Young fathers, as you seek to navigate how to parent well, husbands to love wives well, you have spiritual fathers in this church who have been trusted by God to love and care for you and lead you in the ways of the, of, of the Lord. Older men then, older women, would you take notice of the young spiritual sons and daughters amongst us? Would you put your arm around them? Would you so pray for them? We need it. They need it. Spiritual family is formed. We have the king who was crucified. crucified. We have the king who was vindicated. And then we have the king who cares. And so what shall we take away from this passage? Well, by God's grace, my prayer, my prayer is that I hope you've already seen some of it. 
hope you've already been able to behold Christ on the cross from these three angles. J.C. Ryle speaking in this passage says, he that can read a passage like this without a deep sense of man's debt to Christ must have a very cold or a very thoughtless heart. Great must be the love of the Lord Jesus to sinners when he could voluntarily endure such suffering for their salvation. Great must be the sinfulness of sin when such an amount of vicarious suffering was needed in order to provide redemption. Brothers and sisters, let us not be thoughtless this morning. Let our hearts not be cold, but rather meditate on these truths and so see our hearts warmed, that we may respond as in that old song, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. The good news of the gospel is that we have been left with a sign. We have been left with a symbol and it shows us the way of salvation. So we don't need to remain in chaos, unable to navigate life as we ought. Ignorant and heading towards an eternity without God of which we will be responsible if we don't pay attention to the side. So come behold the sun today. Behold. Behold the cost. Behold the king. Behold him crucified. Behold the suffering. Behold the shame. Behold the substitute. Behold the care. Behold the love. Behold the symbol. Behold the sign. Behold the Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment now to meditate and to consider how we might behold Jesus more tenderly this morning. And then I'll pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, this account was recorded so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. For those who are yet to believe, would you so work in them this morning? And for those who do believe, would you by your spirit empower them to go on believing? We pray this in your resurrected name. Amen.